I'm like, what does that mean? You're, how is that possible? We haven't even, we barely, we just got it on the shelf. We haven't done any marketing. We haven't sampled the product. We were going to travel out there, my dad and I, in the coming weeks to go sample the product. And he goes, no, 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 don't, you got to cancel your trip because, you know, we don't have enough product. He goes, you need to just go, just go back and make as much product as you can. And, and just let me know how many pallets per month you can provide without, you know, straining yourself. And w that's how much they're going to buy. They'll just buy whatever you're going to make. So just, just tell me what that number is. That's what they'll buy. And then we'll just take it from there. Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Boy, are we in for a treat with this episode. Today, you'll be hearing a real story of immigrants pursuing the American dream and how an electrical engineering graduate and his family took his mother's popular original kulfi recipe, that's Indian-style ice cream, from the home kitchen to Costco, Whole Foods, H-E-B, and beyond. This episode is his family's story on how it all happened, his lessons learned, and advice to other entrepreneurs. Two bonus episodes will follow with his advice on working with brokers and deciding when and how to work with co-packers. If you're faced with the same challenges, you'll want to check them out. To learn more about today's guest or find out more about our sponsors, check out the show notes. Guess what? At the end of today's episode, we'll be featuring an incredibly talented young musical artist I found performing at a local farmer's market. Let's get into it. Our guest today is co-founder and CEO of Karina's Kulfi out of Dallas. Amen Singh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Dahlia. Appreciate you, you know, inviting me on uh, to do this with you. Oh, you're so welcome. It's great to see you again. I know that you and I actually met in 2009. You probably, mm -hmm. I don't think you remembered me at the time because when I reached out to you, I don't think you knew who I was, but I remembered you from 2009. I met you at a Texas Restaurant Association Expo. I was representing another company at that time. And um, yeah, you were, your booth was right across from mine. And I'm like, you were giving out samples. I'm like, well, you know, I have to have some of that. <laughs> so I walked on over and you had a few flavors and you let me try your rose. And the rose was so memorable that like how long has it been like 15 something 20 years later i'm yeah. contacting you to say hey so rose you make something called kulfi what the heck is kulfi so basically in short um kulfi is uh the indian version of ice cream and technically speaking it's really its own category of frozen dairy dessert um ice cream is the best analog uh, to it, you could almost say uh, that Kufi is ice cream before there was anything known in the world as ice cream. Uh, be, you know, the origins of Kufi are not uh, recorded in any kind of official way, but the general accepted story uh, that's out there about how it came came to be was that it was something that was introduced uh, to the world by the Mughals and, you know, when the Mughals were ruling over India at the time in the, you know, 15, 1600s, I believe. And they um, basically had, the story goes as they sent their, um, they sent their people off to the Himalayas to bring back ice, big blocks of ice from 
from the Himalayas so that their chefs or their cooks could make kulfi and use that ice to, to freeze the milk uh, and make it into this delicacy uh, that at the time only royalty could afford to, afford to enjoy. Uh, and, and today now it's become a cultural phenomenon, you know, for the last several hundred years, people in the sub Indian subcontinent, you know, which encompasses India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, Myanmar now, um, those areas, those regions have been enjoying kulfi for hundreds of years as a, as a street food delicacy uh, that people have a lot of nostalgia and memories of as young children, you know, going street side in the hot summer days and enjoying a fresh, uh, you know, mold of kulfi, you know, either on a stick or uh, scooped out of a mold onto a plate and garnished with, you know, some crushed nuts oh. or some fruits, you know, fresh fruits or some syrups or, or any other kind of topping, you know, that was popular or available to that particular street vendor. Uh, but the one common thing is the slow cooked cook, you know, slow cooked and caramelized milk that that particular artisan, you know, would spend most of their night prior, you know, preparing and getting ready for the next day uh, to then pour into molds, freeze, and then sell whatever they, they were able to, to produce, you know, from that previous, previous day. So I never, I didn't even know what Kolfi was until I met you, to be honest with you. I'd never heard of it before. The only um, experience I've had with anything like that was like Lassie or mm -hmm. Kiefer. Mm -hmm. um, so like, are, is it kind of like similar or is it just like prepared differently? Well, they're very different and they're similar in that they're both refrigerated or frozen dairy products, you know, that are of a, you know, or, uh, international origin. So kefir, I believe is like Eastern European or Russian, uh, but it's like a, it's a fermented product, a yogurt version right. of yogurt. Mm -hmm. Lussie is also uh, typically made from either cultured buttermilk or yogurt. And it's mostly in liquid form. Um, you know, sometimes they make a thicker lussie, which could be almost like a milkshake consistency. Um, but it is a fermented product um, and a cultured product where kulfi is just, it's just pure cooked milk. It's not fermented. It's not cultured. Um, it's made from typically in, in India and those parts of the world, it's made in uh, from raw milk, right? I mean, they just get milk from the water buffalo or dairy cow and then slow cook it and caramelize it down and then turn it into kulfi by adding their flavor and freezing it. Um, there's no other processing done or any kind of incubation period that's cultures it. So it, that's, that's the difference. It's, it's a more purely, you know, dessert style product, you know, in terms of its, um, in terms of its components and its composition. Wow. You're making my mouth water. It sounds so delicious. So your brand is called Karina's. What, how did you get that name? Where'd your business come from? Is it your business, a family business? Tell me more about the origins of your background and what led this business to be created. Yeah. So Karina's story, it starts at the kitchen table. You know, um, when we immigrated to this country, you know, back in the late seventies, um, not much of our, our home culture food was available in the market, right? I mean, you basically either had friends and relatives who traveled to India to bring back all kinds of ingredients for us to be able to then, you know, make our cuisine. Um, and so kulfi was something that you couldn't bring back and it wasn't being sold in the market. And my mother's 
recipe for kulfi was something that she uh, had passed down from her grandmother to her mother to her. And she used to make it at home, you know, for dinner parties and get togethers hmm. and things like that. that. And she, she didn't take any shortcuts. She, she, she made kulfi the authentic way, which was that laborious process of slow cooking the milk and took the time to pour uh, you know, each uh, individual mold and then let it sit overnight to freeze, you know, to then serve it the next day uh, whenever we had our guests over. And so my mother's cool fee became very popular among our family and friends. And um, so much so to the fact that, you know, word was getting around that Mrs. Singh's or Jess's cool fee was just to die for. And it was amazing. And you have to try it. You have to see what this is all about. We even had a one, there's a, you know, a story we like to tell is one of our family friends had made, you know, they had their, their uh, relatives were visiting from out of town, from out of Texas. They made them extend their trip another day so that they could come to our house <laughs> and try the cool fee. I would have probably you know? done the same thing. I mean, I, I have to be honest with you. I would have done the you know, same like thing. Yeah, they were meant to leave, like, I think that Friday or whatever. And they said, no, you've got to stay through Sunday because we're going to Jess's house on Saturday. And <laughs> she's going to be making this cool fee that she always makes. And you have to try this. It is that good. It'll bring back your you know memories of home. And you have to try this. So they did. You know, they actually you know, extended their flight, you know, just so they could come to the ho our house and, and try it. And they showed up at the door and they're like, you know, you made your coffee, right? Cause you know, our, our relatives are here. And my mom's like, Oh, I, for I forgot. I totally forgot. Oh my and gosh. Freaked out. <laughs> and then she's like, no, no, I'm just kidding. I have it. Don't worry. I made it. So, you know, and it, it was, they, you know, those guests were like, it was worth the wait. It was worth, you know, changing our flight to try this. It was so good, you know? And that's so awesome. that's kind of what told us we had something. And so then yeah. at the time, you know, that was like, maybe like, you know, uh, mid late eighties, but there was not enough market for us to kind of get anything going. Mm -hmm. And both my dad was working, was gainfully employed in a job at the time. And we were very young, my brother and myself, that it, it didn't, it wasn't a viable option to turn it into a business at that point. It was just, there was too much that they didn't know about starting up a business. And also there just wasn't enough market at the time to serve that community or that, that, uh, uh, that market. And it was just, um, it was a pipe dream and we're like, well, we'll see, you know, but we tried it and it, you know, we, we saw that there was a, you know, there was like one Indian grocery store in our locale at the time. There wasn't a whole lot, maybe three or four in total of DFW Dallas Fort Worth area. But, um, uh, so we tried it out. It, it, there was success, but it just wasn't a big enough market to really get going. So then fast forward late nineties, a lot of, you know, immigrants are coming from India and, 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 and that area of the world as it professionals, right. They were bringing um, uh, their expertise in, in it and they were being hired on through H one B visas. And so specifically in DFW, we had a huge influx of Indian immigrants and Indian and Pakistani immigrants. And those folks started setting down roots. And next thing you know, there's a significant amount of population to where 
Indian grocery stores had started popping up and people had started, you know, um, importing things, you know, I guess all of the, uh, the trade had started increasing because there was a finally a demand for it. And so, you know, by the time it was like 98, 99, there was a significant amount of Indian grocery stores that were doing really well, that seemed to have a pretty, you know, strong, steady, sustainable business. So we thought, let's give it another shot. And in fact, we were kind of sparked to try it again because there was a gentleman uh, who had opened up his own Indian distribution and warehouse um, business to, he, he remembered us. And he had, I think, ran into my father somewhere in one of these stores and, and recognized him and said, hey, didn't you guys used to make, you know, this kufi? I remember it <laughs> from way back when. And I always thought, whatever happened to you guys yeah. and this and that, because it was so good. He goes, look, get it going. You're like, now's the time, the market's here. So that's when we kind of, my parents thought, let's give this a shot, you know? And so we made about 40 or 50 bars with the molds that my mom had always used and then gave it out to one of the local uh, grocery stores and sold out in the same day. The guy called us back, said, Hey, I got a standing order. Just, just keep bringing them. And then everything just kind of spread word of mouth from there. And, and the Karina's name came from, um, so like my family is of Sikh, the Sikh faith. Mm-hmm. So those are the folks who wear the, the gentlemen wear turbans mm-hmm. and have beards and things like that. So my father and my mother and all of us, we grew up as Sikhs. And, um, and so in the Sikh faith, men carry the name Singh as either as their middle name or last name and women carry the name Kaur, K-A-U-R oh, okay. as their middle and last name. And it was a, it was kind of a, a symbolic of that the women and men are equal. They don't, need to take on each other's names to be their own person. So wow, if more, if more cultures could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So core, you know, sing means lion core means crown prince. Wow. Uh, And it's, and it means that, you know, that you're your own sovereign, right? So my mother's part of my mother's name was core, right? So we took that, that name and just added the I N a Corina, because it just kind of had a nice ring to it. It sounded kind of feminine. And we felt that a feminine name, you know, lends better at the time to a, um, to a food business or something that's about food. And it also is a hark, harken back to our, or kind of homage to our culture and our origins and our roots. So that core root, you know, is where we kind of come from, you know, and it also represents my mother, you know, who's, whose recipe this is. I love that story. And so that's kind of how we, we came up with Karina, you know, as a, uh, uh, an homage to, to our, our culture and our, on our roots. So is the recipe that you're using today, the same recipe, or have you like made changes to it over time? It's essentially the same recipe in terms of process, in terms of ingredients, it's slightly modified a little bit, you know, for improvement's sake, uh, through, um, you know, uh, through more modern techniques and things of that nature. Uh, but it is essentially the same recipe and process. Uh, all we've done is simply scaled it up. Well, I can, Um, I have to say like meeting you in 2009, having like a little sample on a tiny little spoon. And here we are in 2023 and I still remember it. That means you've done something right. It's like, think about how much ice cream and gelato and all this other stuff I've had since then. Right. But that was memorable for me so much to the point that I wanted to reach out to you. So like you guys are doing something right. And where can I get it now? Because I've been looking for it. Where, where can I find it? Sure. 
No, I appreciate the uh, the flattering words. Um, it it makes us really feel good, and that keeps us inspired to keep going. Um, so you can currently get kulfi uh, at all the local Indian and South Asian grocers in the Texas area. Um, you know, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, um, Houston. Then you can also get uh, Karina's now at um, at Costco. Uh, so we sell it throughout multiple Texas locations and Costco. Uh, it's always changing. Costco kind of keeps changing things around. But you, if it's, you know, in a major metro area, you probably can get it at your Costco in your locale in Texas. And we also are in the Bay Area, Northern California. we in Costco's there. We're also in Costco's in the Northeast in about 28 locations. We also have about maybe a handful of locations up in the North Pacific Northwest, including maybe one or two locations in Alaska. Wow. Um, oh my yeah. God. So Costco's <laughs> kind of spread us out a little bit with their distribution, which has been great. Um, and it's a party pack. We get three flavors in one pack and it's oh, a it's snack perfect. size bar. Mm. Uh, so that's what you have at Costco. Then this year we're in Whole Foods in the DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. So the 14 locations of the Whole Foods, as well as 101 HEB locations in Texas also carry uh, Karina's Kulfi. And these flavors are the pistachio almond, the mango, the malai, which is the cardamom flavor. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at HEB, it's the pistachio almond, the mango, and the vanilla flavor. Well, okay. I am so impressed. Let's just start with that because it's like you guys had the American dream come to life. Like, there's so many things to unpack here. Like, I want to hear everything, and I have, like, a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a feeling this is probably going to go into round two. But, okay, so uh, how did you get from the kitchen to Costco? Yeah, that's a long story, right? So, um, you know, sometimes we think back, and we're not quite sure how we did it either. Um, you know, I, I would say in any kind of venture, it's like, you know, 50% perseverance and hard work and effort and, and just slogging away and hustling, right? Not taking no for an answer. Um, when people tell you this ain't going to work or this is not, you know, you shouldn't pursue this or this is not going to really take you anywhere. But if you believe in it, you know it in your heart, then, you know, you keep going and you don't listen to the naysayers. You just find a way. Uh, the other 50% is kind of luck, right? Serendipity, right place, right time. So, um, starting it out, you know, it was just, you know, we just started, you know, my mom had a day job. Um, uh, my dad was working, but we did this stuff on the side, you know, um, evenings, weekends is how we kind of built up the business, you know? And, um, so in the evenings we'd be making the product, you know, uh, in various stages. And then on the other evenings and weekends, my brother, myself, my dad, we go out and make deliveries to the stores, you know, uh, little bits at a time. It, you know, it wasn't huge orders, but, uh, you know, enough that it was worth continuing to pursue. Um, once we got to a level of business where we were, had more demand than we could supply, uh, try to look for all options to how do we make more product, right? So, or how can we make more product in the same time frame, right? So, we had to graduate from the home operation to something a little bit more. So my dad one day was out, you know, driving around and he noticed uh, these little push carts where these guys, where they sell the Mexican ice cream pops, 
the paletas, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. paleteros. <laughs> and these guys are out there, you know, in the heat, you know, pushing their carts, selling uh, Mexican style ice cream pops and fruit bars and stuff. So my dad stopped one of those guys, bought one of their pops, talked to them, you know, like, hey, who's your, you know, where do you guys make this stuff and this and that. And a lot of those paleteros, like they're, they're probably don't speak English or they're immigrant, mm-hmm. new immigrants that, you know, probably don't have a whole lot of conversation skills. So the back of the packaging kind of had the address and where the place was. So my dad called a couple of these places and finally landed on one that was willing to talk to him. And he went over to visit them at their location. And they're just like a small little shop. It was, you know, in the back, they had this whole paleta making operation. And in the front, they were selling like, you know, to the public, like sandwiches and snacks and drinks and things like that. So, um, my dad enlisted the help of this guy to basically what we call now in the industry co-pack for us, you know? And so he uh, agreed that we would bring him the mix and then he would turn it into the, the cool fee bars because he had the equipment to do that, but he didn't have the equipment to make the mix. So we would still make the mix at home and then take, and I would truck the mix over to, you know, um, once I had like, you know, 20, 30, 40 gallons of it, I would then take that over to, uh, to the paleteria in, in, in Dallas. And the guy would then turn that into product for us and freeze it in the mold. He got the molds made from Mexico and he just made our product in those molds and then package it and everything. And I just go pick up the finished product, bring it back, put it in our freezers and make deliveries that week. And we were making like 40, 50 cool fees a night at home. <laughs> this guy was able to make, you know, several hundred a wow. day. Right. So how and that was just a huge jump for us. Oh my God. I can imagine. I'm sure that was super exciting. Cause that's like a one sign of like, I'm on my path forward here. Like I've got the next step, then the next step and then the next step. So like, how long did right. you use the co-packer? So the co-packer lasted about maybe I would think six months to a year. I can't remember entirely because the the demand started growing even from there. Once we able to do a little bit more, um, we were able to, you know, uh, service more stores and the, the, you know, the demand came higher because more and more Indian stores started popping up in those years. And so every time somebody opened up a new Indian store, they would just see what was at the old other competing ones and call the same vendors. Oh, right. Okay. So we just, we just kept getting calls weekly from people like, That's Hey, so cool. I saw your product at this store. I'd like to carry your same product. You know, tell me what the pricing is, blah, 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 blah. And so it just kind of word of mouth. We didn't have to do any marketing, which is great in the beginning because it was just selling itself because we were the only game in town, so to speak at the time, because we were local, we were distributing it ourselves. So we kept the quality very good in terms of how it got to the store. Cause there were other people making cool fees. you know, by that time you'd had some bigger brands that had started importing multiple product lines from India and packaging them. And so they, some of them also tried to get in cool fee and ice cream, but you know, it's coming from New York or Chicago yeah. or wherever. And by the time it reached here, uh, it was just in bad shape. It was half melted, you know, everything was out of shape. Packaging was really crappy. So it, it, it never sold. They, they just, by the time it got to the shelf, it was all melted. So nobody would buy that stuff. Um, and so our product was always kind of pristine looking nice, even though our packaging was really kind of homemade, but it, you know, everybody knew it, you know? Yeah. And so that really helped. And I remember back in those days, cause we were still making the mix at home. So we didn't have a commercial operation. And my dad 
tried calling some of these bigger dairy suppliers and saying, Hey, I need to order in volume milk. And when they found out our address was residential, like, sir, we can't, yeah, <laughs> we, we can't deliver to your house. That's you illegal have to have like a Texas. place of business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we would do is we would go to the local supermarket and um, we would buy our milk from, from the supermarket in crates. <laughs> uh, so like we would talk to the dairy buyer at that local supermarket and say, Hey, I need like 25 crates of, of half and half. <laughs> <laughs> And the guy's like, what? And then we'd be like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Like he didn't even, he didn't even flinch. Like he's all right. If that's what you want to order, he's happy because he's getting, you know, business Mm -hmm. and you know, it's making his numbers look good. And I'm just sort of wondering the corporate office must be wondering like, what is going on? on How much milk are these people drinking in the back? (laughs) Yeah. Like what is going on? Are we spilling this milk? How are we actually selling? Like who's buying this milk? coffee service every morning and tons of this stuff and every night i'd come home and like i would take you know it's like quart size half and half right they didn't make them in bigger packages so i'm like on you know pouring you know 40 gallons worth of you know quartz you know into these pots on a on a portable stove (laughs) where i'm cooking the milk you know while i'm watching seinfeld every night you know so it's just just crazy um so that that's what we did for a good six months or a year before we were able to save up enough money and um, then look at, you know, getting our own commercial kitchen, so to speak. You know, we call it a factory, but it was probably more of a commercial kitchen, to be honest. So we found a place close by to the house, thankfully, um, just, you know, maybe a few miles away in kind of this kind of commercial industrial district area um, close by our house. And my dad got all set up in a in this in this facility and we even got the help and assistance of our co-packer with the equipment side of things since we just basically needed to get the same equipment he had uh to make our product and he he was really genuine and kind and authentic with us he himself was a mexican immigrant and you know he his english was um pretty good i mean uh it was it was understandable i would say about 80 percent. you know he had a heavy accent my dad also has his accent so both of these two immigrants kind of working together to 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 build their american dreams it was just kind of cool to watch that mexican immigrant indian immigrant you know uh you know making their own cultural (laughs) food and trying to sell it to the public right so this guy really was genuine and helped us out and he was very instrumental in getting us set up in our in our facility knowing he was going to lose our business um, but he recognized also that we were growing you know beyond what he could provide us mm-hmm. so um and he had plenty of his own business anyway so it wasn't really going to hurt him as much as um you know losing our business although he was doing well with it um so we ended up um setting up our own facility now and had our own you know, cool fee making facility and uh, hired our own employees and, and started working from there, you know? Um, and so now we're looking at maybe like, you know, 2000, you know, around that year, 2000 mm-hmm. uh, and operating out of our own facility, proper, you know, proper commercial kitchen now and manufacturing our product. And then we were looking at, you know, just slowly growing and building the brand now, you know, just organically, really. It was organic growth at that time. We were funding our own growth. Um, the next step was to kind of expand our reach into Houston. So we uh, started, I started making deliveries in Houston. Um, and I would go down a couple times a month and, you know, deliver down to the stores there uh, and started building and growing our 
our brand down there. I eventually got into a, a relationship with a distributor down there and they were able to take over the route for us and they would just come pick up from us then once a month oh, and then cool. delivering to the stores. Yeah. And so all of that stuff started happening. So it was really cool to see that happening. Um, and all the while I was late nineties, I finished college. Uh, and then in 2000, uh, even though I was helping out with the business, I did get a full-time job, you know, to, to kind of put my degree to use. Um, so I'd gotten a degree in engineering. And so I got an engineering job as a consulting engineer uh, for a small startup. Uh, and I ended up working there for about four years, but I was helping out with the business all the while. And then eventually um, in 2004, I decided to quit uh, and join Karina's full time. And it was kind of a funny story because I was watching the growth and I was like, man, we really got to, this needs more, more of my time. I really want to see how far we can take this. Right. So um, I told my dad, I was like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to join you full time. We're going to, we're going to see where we can do with this. And my dad was a little nervous because he, even though he's an entrepreneur by nature, I would say he was always risk averse in his his speech, like how he would talk. He's like, no, you've got a job, you've got benefits, you've got a good, you know, stable situation. Just keep building on that. Don't jump into this stuff. It's always risky. Our whole life we've, you know, been risky with these kinds of ventures. And, you know, you just don't know where it's going to go. I said, yeah, but I said, I'm young enough. I can do this now. And if, you know, I'm not going to devote a ton of time to it. If I said, if it, if it doesn't work out in a couple of years, I'll, I'll go get a job, you know? So I was like, he's like, well, here's the deal. I need a business plan. You know, you give me, you tell me how you're going to grow and develop this business and how you're going to pay for yourself and how you're going to generate more business from, from your efforts. And, and once I get that, we'll see if that's a good idea. And if you, if you can, I'll let you join on full time. Cause at that point, my dad owned the business a hundred percent. So it was his, you know, it was his venture. It was his, you know, um, baby, so to speak. Um, and I was like, okay, all right, fine. Uh, but like, you know, typical kids, right. We mm -hmm. don't, we don't follow through. <laughs> so, uh, one fine June morning, um, I go, I go over to my dad's plant. I go over to the plant, basically we called it the plant. It was just a kitchen. <laughs> and I said, I said, I quit my job. I'm joining you. <laughs> and he goes, well, where's my business plan? I said, I don't have it. I said, my business plan is don't pay me for a year. I've saved up enough money for my job. Don't pay me for a year. Allow me to move back home to save some more money. And I will, I will, within the year, I will find a way to earn my own income from the business. Wow. And, hmm. and he wasn't happy with that, but there's really nothing he could do because I'd already quit. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got in, you know, all in hundred percent and, you know, we kind of, restructured the company, uh, as an LLC, and then really kind of looked at, you know, um, how, how I'm trying to look at how, how can I start building sales and growing? Right. So, you know, just like everybody else, you're working in the business is like a glorified delivery guy and glorified manufacturing manager or whatever, but all the while handling all the other hats too. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I continued to try to grow the Houston market, go to Austin, San Antonio, uh, I also really tried my um, chances with the the mainstream market too, you know, um, 
we we just did whatever we whatever opportunities we could, which is how you saw us in two thousand nine, yeah. I believe, right at the TRA. So we're just looking at all different avenues to promote and expose the product to the larger market. And we were doing that with some little bits of successes here and there, like we had um, got our product actually in the early days into Whole Foods and Central Market uh, as a single bar pack and got it in there for a short stint, you know, in about 2004, 2005-ish. And then they kind of fizzed out, you know, and we just didn't have the resources to maintain marketing and maintain, um, you know, promotion of the product. It was just me and my dad, and we were just kind of learning on the fly. Meanwhile, we still had a lot of the Indian market was keeping us busy. So it just was a lack of resources and a lack of knowledge on my end on how to scale and grow. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, fast forward to 2008, 2009, it was getting to a point now, by this time I, I got married in 2005 and I had also told my then, uh, my, my then fiance in 2004 that I was joining the business full time. And I told her, I'm not going to give it more than four or five years before I decide which way I want to go. You know, if it doesn't pan out, then, you know, I'll, I'll go on to something else. And so I was kind of right at that brink. Um, It was 2009, 2010, you know, conversations with my wife were like, okay, where are we? Where are we going with this? Can this thing grow? Is there, is there feet, is there wheels on this thing to, to scale it? Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure at this point, you know, Um, we've been trying all these different things and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I said, but I think what we need to do is go to a trade show to really test our, you know, test our brand. And so we, we got a little bit of, you know, we worked hard to get like a, a business loan, an SBA business loan yeah, and decided to try our luck at a food trade show. <laughs> That's where so, I met you, right? Is that the one I met you at? Yeah. Well, this was a different one. You okay. met me at the restaurant yeah. association show. Okay. This was like the proper mainstream, like food products show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was, uh, we went to two of them that year. Um, we went to fancy food, uh, summer and we went to Expo West. Uh, so Expo West was the first one that was like in March of 2011 and, uh, fancy food was in June of 2011. And so we went to these two shows, we got a booth, we sampled out Kulfi and, it was a hit really. Um, we got a great response, like in, in Expo West, we, you know, we were in the basement, you know, where all the newbies go and just kind of off to a corner, you know, with our little banner and our little, you know, standing, nothing impressive, just a backdrop and just had free cool feed. We're just giving out samples. Good samples. Like they're yummy. You don't need, all you got to do is put that in somebody's mouth. You don't need advertising. Like that just sells it itself, you know, really, it really does. Yeah. That's all we did. Yeah. Um, and people kept, coming back down. Like there were people saying, Hey, I've been seeing people walking around with this bar and they told me to come down here to get it. And they told me this booth and all that. And so it was really kind of cool. People were really, really taking to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were getting a lot of buzz actually, surprisingly, it's such a big show. Uh, And so that was cool. And we were just doing what everybody else does is noting down contacts and doing whatever we can to follow up later to see what we need to do and where we need to go. A lot of people giving us kind of like advice on like how tough it is to build a brand and just kind of saying, Hey, you may be getting good response here, but 
just understand these are the expectations moving forward. Like it's going to take a lot of cash and money to build your brand. And so just be aware of that as you move forward, there's a lot of like hidden costs. So we were just soaking up and absorbing whatever advice and information that was coming our way. And then on the last day, I believe um, this young lady was at our booth and she looked pretty young. Um, I thought she might've been somebody's relative, like that happened to get a little, you know, badge and just walking around trying things. Right. <laughs> I didn't really pay much mind. And it was the last day and we were all kind of like exhausted. So, but you know, she was very interested asking questions and I, I couldn't read her badge cause it was turned over. So I didn't know like who she was or who she was with, but then she finally revealed that she's with Costco and that she's the grocery buyer for Costco wow. Bay area. And she's like, I really love this. This oh, is really tasty. Wow. And I, I'm not, she goes, I'm not the frozen buyer, but I know them. And I'm going to, I'm going to pass your information along to them and tell them that they need to call you because I really think this is something that they're looking for and they'd be very interested. I'm so proud of you. That is so exciting. And sometimes the surprises come from people you least expect it from. So man, talk about yeah. keeping your brand personal persona and personal brand put together continuously because you just never know who you're going to run into. It's so cool. Yeah. It's just story. crazy. Yeah. And then, then everything kind of took off from there. We, we met with the buyers and then they started working with us. And that's the crazy part of all this is usually you start your brand and you get into like little grocery places, a little grocery store independence, and you build it up to eventually then Costco recognizes that you might be worth, uh, you know, trying out. We, we, started in Costco. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so we weren't in any other brands that we weren't in any retailers at that time. This, this, this buyer really took a chance on us. And um, so in 2012, we, we, you know, we, we worked after that show and making contact with the Costco regional buyer, we worked for a good solid eight, nine months with them, you know, closely on how to present the product to them. Um, and, and how to, what, what kind of a product we wanted to sell to them. We wanted to sell them a cool fee, but what flavor, what pack size, all of these things had to be discussed and determined. And so that's where we kind of came up with the party pack, right. Mm -hmm. Which would be exclusive to Costco. I didn't want, I didn't want to just shrink wrap two of my best selling, you know, shrink wrap two packs of my best selling item and then sell it to Costco, which is a lot of times how they'd bring stuff yeah, in. Exactly. They, they test it out that way. And, but I didn't want to cannibalize my business, right? Mm -hmm. Because if that, if, if I was going to do that, then the, the Indian stores, our legacy accounts would suffer, right? People would just buy product from Costco and not from them. I'm with Amon Singh of Karina's Kulfi. Stick around till after the break as you don't want to miss out on what happened next with Costco. Also coming up, Amon explains his decision to skip the retail model and go straight to wholesale distribution. We'll be right back. Are you looking for high quality, professional grade nutritional supplements that you can only get with the help of an integrative health practitioner? Well, believe it or not, I'm actually a degreed health science and integrative medicine practitioner, and I'm able to extend my 15% off practitioner discount to you on over 350 professional grade brands. Plus, they gave you free shipping on $49 or more. Please visit wellevate.me slash dahlia hyphen colada. 
This episode is sponsored by Salve Naturals, the leader in cruelty-free, plant-based, and natural topical medicines with ingredients sourced from American farmers. These natural products are freshly handmade in the USA, Houston, Texas, to be precise. Please visit salvenaturals.com or check out Salve and the healthy living departments at HEB stores across Texas. We're looking for inspiring expert guests and original musical artists. Think you have what it takes to be a part of the show? Please go to makingittomarket.com and apply. Making It to Market is a listener and sponsor supported show. Want to help us out to keep the show going? Find out how in the show notes. So did they have an opinion and like what flavors they wanted or were they kind of like getting guidance from you on what you recommended? Yeah, there was a little bit of both. Like they mm -hmm. sampled all the flavors we made. We told them which ones are the most popular and then, you know, we kind of recommended to them the flavors and then they just kind of went with that. So, mm -hmm. and they agreed on it too, you know, so that is kind of how we came to that decision that it's going to be these top three flavors. And at the time it made sense because, pistachio almond mango and malai are like the most prominent flavors in the indian palate when it comes to gulfi and um so it was kind of a no-brainer that these are going to be the three flavors um and so um since that time we've offered up other ideas and they still continue to buy that those three but we we would love to be able to bring in other flavor ideas like a vanilla chocolate strawberry which i think are really fantastic um, because with a kulfi base, it just gives a whole new dimension to those flavors. Um, and then, of course, like, you know, ideas like rose and things like that, mm -hmm. I think, are definitely on the table for us um, to present at some point. I'm a big fan of the rose. The rose is yummy. So yeah, good. I agree. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yes, we've done that. So in 2012, they gave us their first purchase order uh, for the Bay Area for two locations. So it was after uh labor day after school started at the end of summer is when we got the first purchase order <laughs> we're like what's going on this is like crazy you know like you know this is not the best time to start selling an ice cream brand you know <laughs> um so we were kind of worried about what the response would be at that part of the season because that's kind of the tail end of summer right it's post-summer school started people are not thinking about ice cream anymore they're thinking about other things and so we shipped the product out uh, it got there on a Thursday, I believe, on the shelf on a Friday. And by Saturday, I'm getting a phone call from our brokers. At the time, we started working with a broker, too, to help us uh, with that relationship. And so the broker guy calls me and says, hey, uh, how many more pallets do you guys have in stock? Pallets? Like, yeah. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? Because we shipped out two pallets, right? Oh so that God. was the first order. We shipped out two pallets. And I, and he's, he goes, do you have any more extra pallets? I'm like, pallets? I go, I go, man, we just shipped two pallets. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, I go, he goes, so how many do you have left? I said, I don't have any left. I have nothing left. We made, they ordered two pallets. We made two pallets and we shipped two pallets. I don't have any more pallets. And, and he's like, oh, this is a problem. I'm like, what happened? Did the, the shipment get, you know, spoiled or melted, like the oh. truck not make it, what happened? And he goes, no, 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 nothing like that. He goes, we're almost sold out. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I like, I didn't register what he said at first. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He goes, we're almost sold out. 
I'm like, what does that mean? You're, how is that possible? We haven't even, we barely, we just got it on the shelf. We haven't done any marketing. We haven't sampled the product. We were going to travel out there, my dad and I, in the coming weeks to go sample the product. And he goes, no, 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 don't, you got to cancel your trip because <laughs> oh my you know, we don't have enough product. He goes, you need to just go, just go back and make as much product as you can. And, and just let me know how many pallets per month you can provide without, you know, straining yourself. And w- that's how much they're going to buy. They'll just buy whatever you're going to make. So just, just tell me what that number is. That's what they'll buy. And then we'll just take it from there. I guess that's how you know you're on the right track. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that you're doing something right. The flavor's right. The price is right. The packaging is right. How do you keep, yeah. how do you keep the stuff refrigerated in all these places you're distributing to? What's your technique for like, what's your method for that? Well, for, for, for out of Texas, it's just, you know, frozen trucking lines, you know, you've got to have a good partnership. You've got to, you've got to be very strict about the fact that my product needs to maintain a particular temperature below and the whole way through. And you've got to get assurances from them that that's going to be the case. And uh, you, we've got pretty good infrastructure when it comes to that. There's, you know, we're not the only people shipping ice cream. So there are what they call frozen truck lines that, that will specifically ship frozen product. And it's even more so uh, for ice cream products. So there's frozen and then there's frozen ice cream. So Mm, those are two different categories of frozen, right? Um, frozen food, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of leeway where it product can maybe thaw or warm up a little bit, but it won't hurt the overall quality of the product when it refreezes. But ice cream is such a thing and such a sensitive thing that it, it cannot go above a certain temperature. Otherwise it starts to melt slowly or it starts to lose its shape or its consistency. Mm-hmm. So it needs to avoid um, in temperatures higher than like zero Fahrenheit. Um, otherwise you're going to run into potential issues with what they call heat shock. Yeah. That's any exposure to a warmer temperature than minus five or minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So um, that's kind of what, you know, you need to have when it comes to distribution of our, our particular category of product. So yeah. So we, you know, we started jumping to make this as much as possible. We just, that little plant then just became, you know, crazy business for us, you know, and it helped us expand and grow in the Costco realm and and build our, build our brand up, you know, and very quickly we found ourselves in multiple regions of Costco. Amazing. So how many employees do you have now? So right now we have roughly about, you know, um, 25 to 30 employees, wow. you know, uh, in our facility, we've since moved out of the small little 5,000 square foot kitchen and we're in a 30,000 square foot facility, you know, um, have six X capacity of what we previously had and are working to fill that capacity up, uh, and build the business. Um, so yeah, we've, we're, we're doing okay. You know, we're happy. We've got a good team of people, front office and production end as well. And, 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 you know, full fledged uh, manufacturing facility. That's amazing. I, I admire that because I know that life, it's not easy by any means. And you've got not only to manage supply chain and operations management, but also expiring materials and storage and distribution and marketing. So there's a lot at play here. For the listeners who are interested in Ammon's experience working with brokers and his advice to us, there's another episode following this one if you're interested in hearing more. So your distribution strategy right now is you're you're working with brokers, you're doing direct sales. I have a two-part question. One, 
It sounds like most of your business is intended to be business to business, like selling wholesale. At one point, have you ever done like retail? Is that even part of your strategy for distribution? It's something that's always been in the back of our minds, like a Kulfi shop, like direct to retail, like a like an ice cream scoop shop or a gelateria. Maybe we make a Kulfi shop uh, with our branding on it, but that is a whole separate kind of business venture, I would say, because when you're going straight to you know a retail model straight to the public, it has to have like a lot of cachet. You have to do it right. You know, I mean, how many different frozen yogurt brands out there, right? Like how many different gelato brands out there trying to run their own shops? And I think the other thing with the revenue model is, you know, brick and mortar now is, is a tough one. It's a, it's a tough strategy now because, you know, there's only a limit to how much you can generate revenue wise from one building, right? Whereas in this manufacturing plant, I'm, have the have the ability to scale two, three, four times more exactly. than what I'm doing yeah. now. It's scalable. Um, mm-hmm. It's scalable. Whereas that has a limit before it's like, okay, now we got to open up another location. And then that's a whole other venture opening up a second location and, and going that route. It's not impossible. And it's definitely not saying it's not worth doing. Uh, it might be something worth doing locally to test the market and just kind of see, is there, is there something here that we can go direct and build the brand that way? Cause marketing wise, it would be great brand exposure, but it's, it's also an expensive proposition. It's so, expensive, so yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing where we've kind of, we kind of started this way by chance. And so we thought we're going to keep it this way. Cause it seemed to be the best way to scale, but it's still there. You know, we kind of, we kind of dream up about it or romanticize the idea of maybe having a, like a Kulfi shop one day where we, you know, offer up all kinds of cool, uh, flavor ideas to the public that we can, you know, do on a more um, nimble scale. You could say, you know, we could try different flavors because we don't have to worry about the packaging and all that. So it's still something I play with uh, as, a, as how can we make it work and happen that we can do something like that. And, you know, maybe there's some kind of a hybrid we can do potentially uh, where we use our, our factory as kind of like a commissary mm-hmm. to then make, you know, small batch you know, flavors and, you know, ship it over to the coffee stop. But, um, but yeah, that is, that is a consideration, but right now we're just so focused in on building the brand and the retail market that it really takes up all our time. It's just, it's also a question of resources, right? Absolutely. It does take considerably more resources to be a a retail brand, which is, what's very interesting to me that you took this approach of starting a brand and going straight to wholesale, because most people say, I'm going to go sell at farmer's markets. I'm going to start selling to my neighbors and community and friends. And then like the wholesale aspect comes later on because I think a lot of people feel like maybe I need to like let people try it, see if they like it um, before I pursue that. Um, But I just think it's fascinating that you kind of skipped that process that most people who are selling a product go through selling retail. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would kind of say we took a different route because we had the Indian market, right? We had the niche ethnic markets to build our brand. That's our steady business day to day, week to week that we've been doing for the last 20 years. So that's kind of like why we felt like there wasn't really a need to go to farmers markets and kind of start in that kind of scrappy startup way Mm -hmm. because we, we felt like we had enough of a, um, we had enough of a base that, and then also with Costco, we had enough of a base that you could see the sales were doing really well, that that the performance in in that channel should speak for itself when we go to retail. 
And so that's, that's how we were able to kind of get ourselves into the larger retailers uh, like Whole Foods and HEB this year because of what we did in Costco. And I think also buyers are finally like opening up to looking at unique and different items, especially that may be globally inspired, you know, uh, because I think consumers are now interested more than ever before for international flavors and products that have international origins and, and are unique, but at the same time, you know, wholesome and healthier versions of, you know, what they already buy. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your brand. So your branding decisions, like what marketing decisions have you tried getting your other than, you know, your wholesale, like what, 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 what have you tried? What worked? What didn't work? Where do you see yourself as far as marketing and branding? I kind of still think we're a work in progress. We're kind of trying to figure out what is that perfect um, branding blend of our, um, of, of how we present ourselves to the market. Cause you know, in the Indian market, it was pretty straightforward. Everybody knows Kulfi. They know the word, they know the concept, they know the product. So branding wise, we were the only game in town, so we didn't have to do much. So we just had to make our packaging attractive and look cool. And, and that was that, but it's been a real challenge kind of breaking through into the mainstream because we continue to get pigeonholed as an ethnic product when we feel we are something that is um, uh, appealing to everybody because it's not like we've got special, unusual ingredients in our product. They're made milk, sugar, and then flavor, and that's basically it. And pistachio, almond, mango, even cardamom nowadays is not so foreign to people that they would be unwilling to try it or be like put off by it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, we feel we are a mainstream brand with a international origin or roots, um, similar to gelato, right? Indian ice cream, Italian ice cream. I mean, it's really the same analog. Uh, are we any really different from mochi, you know, which is even more unusual in its concept <laughs> than kofi, mm -hmm. you know, a rice dough covered ice cream. So, uh, and, and they're doing incredibly well as categories. So we feel we can do the same. And the question is now is our branding, you know, the, the way our, the branding looks, does it resonate with the general public the way we want it to? I think it does. I think it's really just now a matter of volume of exposure. We just need to get the word out wider and broader for people to recognize it because now for the last several months now, we've been doing samplings at stores like Whole Foods locally and trying, you know, I've been customer facing at these samplings, handing out, you know, samples of cool fees like you tried, you know, way back when, mm -hmm. and people love it just like you, the same reaction. Mm -hmm. They just it's memorable. They love it. They think it's amazing. Um, they go and buy it right away when they try it. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing people, you know, relate and resonate with it a lot now. And it's been great to do these samplings to see real time people responding and reacting to the product when they try it and discovering it for the first time. I think that's the biggest joy I get from the demos is seeing somebody try something completely new and different for the first time and the reaction to that. You should start like, recording that and make your social media all about people's first reactions. It's kind of like hearing for the first time or seeing for the first time, you know, that'd be really yeah. cool. <laughs> that, that would be totally cool idea. And that's kind of what we're thinking. How do we do that? You know, we're trying to find a way to 
to work that into our demos because you also have to get people's permission and all this kind of stuff, right? So yeah, we're definitely looking at trying to get that worked in uh, to, to our marketing strategy as well. Um, but then also the other part we're going to try to do, which is a analog to the, the brick and mortar is e-commerce. Mm -hmm. So I think another thing for us is um, doing e-commerce and um, being able to um, uh, sell direct to consumers via, you know, shipping directly to them like the Amazon model. So we're, we're working hard to get our website up and running to where people can order that's cool. Kofi bars and Kofi pints uh, on um, on the website. You have to let me know. I want to be your first customer on the Absolutely, online. Yeah. Dude, yeah, please. Like, <laughs> I want to be the first one because I'm excited. Like, seriously. Yeah, well, I'll definitely send you the link once we got it up and running and you can be our, our part of our test group. I've already made room in my freezer. So I'm like, I'm ready <laughs> to go. <laughs> nice. So if you're considering outsourcing your product line to maybe a co-packer, um, Amon has some really great advice on what to consider as you select them, as you're working with them, or even becoming a co-packer. Um, if you're also interested in finding out how to make that decision, whether to outsource or stay in-house with your production, check out episode number 21. He's got some really great insights that I thought were valuable in pulling out as its own episode. So do you ever use focus groups for your flavors and your branding? Never, never, no, never done that yet. Um, I don't really even all, honestly know how useful those are. I've been a part of focus groups and I kind of feel like a lot of times people just tell you what you want to hear or tell you what they think you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how honest people are in focus groups to be, mm -hmm. to be real. Um, I just, uh, I think, you know, the best test market is just invest a little money, make a small batch of product, throw it out there if you can and, and see what the response is. If the sales are good, you got a winner. If the sales aren't so hot, move on to the next flavor, <laughs> you know, good. but um, yeah. the kind of costing involved in that is probably almost equivalent to a focus group, oh. you know, uh, especially if you can make things on a small batch. Uh, if you have, if you have the nimbleness in your, in your operation to do that, you know, I could make uh, at the moment, I have probably have the capacity with my vendors and suppliers to maybe make a small 500 pack you know, uh, run of flavors where I could try out a new idea and make only like four or 500 packs worth of it and then throw it out in the market, see what people think. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you know, we, we, now we know, and then we move on to something else. Yeah. As far as your goals and you know, where you are now, where, where do you see yourself? I mean, what kind of goals do you have coming up and then are you developing new products? So kind of tell me more about that. Yeah. So our ambition is really to make Kofi the next big ice cream category in the U S right. Um, we, we, we got some traction. We've got good traction with Costco. We've got into HEB. We've got into whole foods. We're trying to perform well in these, uh, in these channels. And we would, you know, our, our grand vision is to see our product on every shelf in America in the grocery, in the grocery category. Um, and introduce Kulfi to to the American diaspora as another option for dessert that is, you know, um, unique and flavorful, but also better for you in terms of ingredients and nutrition. And um, kind of straddle the line between the healthy ice cream and the indulgent, 
right? Kind of create a new little niche category of better for you, not totally a healthy ice cream where it's all about low calories, but, but also hey, it's not, keto. it's keto. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. exactly. Right. <laughs> and not also not, you know, but also something that's indulgent and, and tasty and, and rich, you know, and where you feel satisfied when you've, when you've consumed it. So we're, we're trying to create that little niche category for ourselves and, and make us like, you know, I'd love to see us blow up like gelato and, and mochi has, and, and us be the lead in that thing, you know, where we're, we're leading the Kulfi category with our brand. That's right. That's, that's our ambition. I can't wait to see that happen. I'm excited for you. It's super cool. So Thanks. what did you do wrong in your path so far? So how long have you been in business now? 20 years. 20 years. Okay. Yeah. What are like some, some, tell me some of the crash and burns you've had. Yeah. What didn't we do wrong? Right. I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> the whole Whole, this whole time has been just nothing but a comedy of errors, you know. Um, <laughs> hindsight twenty twenty. Okay, uh, I probably would have tried to see if we could have um, done some type of hybrid co-packing. If we, if I could go back and look at things, um, like maybe we, you know, find some way to hybrid co-pack where we partially make our product, like we were doing with that guy back in the beginning, where you know, we'd make the mix and he'd finish it off or something like that. You know, uh, that's one thing I think, you know, going back, maybe that would be, you know, have been something we could have looked at. Um, maybe, you know, potentially in the early days when things started growing, like looking at, looking at probably bringing on capital partners, you know, uh, instead of kind of bootstrapping it ourselves, uh, maybe bringing on partners. And that might've been uh, a way to grow, a little bit more rapidly than the way we're growing now. Um, and, you know, just in the early days, you know, I mean, I guess there's really not much we could have done. It was all just kind of learning as you go. But um, those are some of the bigger ones, I think. And maybe, maybe trying to see if we could build a, a distribution market outside of Texas and like, having, if I had the time, but I would have loved to have been able to like go spend some time in Northern Southern California and see if I could build that market and be able to find a way to distribute our products to the Indian markets outside of Texas. Mm -hmm. Cause the frozen distribution has always just been the biggest handicap is, is distributing products and frozen to other markets. It's tough. And it's so, not like you can pack it in your trunk and then just keep making stops. Right. Like it's, exactly. <laughs> it was easy to do Houston. Cause like yeah. I could do that. I could pack it in the minivan and dry ice and I was doing that. Yeah. But at the same time, it was on a very small scale. So scaling the business is a tough one. Um, I don't know if there's much we could have done differently the way we've done it. Um, but a couple of those things I would have maybe tried to explore a little bit more if, if I had the time and resources to do so. But I think, you know, Every every path has its its way, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong. It's it's just is what it is, right? And you get there when you do. So um, I think, yeah. I mean, I probably would have just maybe uh, maybe gone back to school and maybe got a business degree, <laughs> <laughs> or added added a business minor so that maybe yeah. I could have jumped in with a little bit more knowledge of how to how to organize things better and how to scale things a little bit better with that kind of book knowledge where I had to took me years to learn in the field versus kind of already knowing, knowing that coming out of school, you would mm -hmm. maybe be able to put implement some of these, these tools and these strategies 
quicker, more readily. So maybe that would be the the first thing is have gone back to school and maybe done some some courses in business administration and you know accounting and finance and things like that. And knowing that, I think any entrepreneur. Uh, before jumping into a full business, they really should understand the finance side of things. They should really understand how the money flows and works when it comes to a business. So do you use your engineering degree at all? Yeah. I mean, I think the on a fundamental level, the the engineering degree helped me with problem solving, right? I mean, it's all about how do I solve this problem, right? I've got this problem of production. I've got this problem of distribution. I've got this problem of marketing. You know, like I think the engineering uh, mind is all about problem solving and figuring out how to find the solution based off the parameters presented in front of you. So that's been, I think, very key for me is having that training uh, of problem solving to 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 make us successful where we are. Secondly, it's helped me with my equipment. You know, like <laughs> I, I, you know, like I, I, I can kind of intelligently talk about my equipment with with contractors and, and, and people, you know, in, in the field where I'm not completely oblivious, you know? So the, you know, that background has been helpful too in my job working in a, uh, in the engineering field for the first few years of my career, I think was, was helpful in, in me being able to kind of understand how some of all this stuff works yeah. uh, in terms of systems and processes and, and, and machinery. And, and in your, uh, years of experience now in your brand, what do you feel like you're the most proud of? What do you feel like you did right? You know, I think we stayed true to our, our roots and our vision of uh, purity of the product. You know, we didn't, we didn't kind of like try to cheapen the product by using different ingredients, you know, that were cheaper, but give us the same kind of texture result. We, we stayed very, we were very, um, deliberate about not changing the recipe about even spending more time and money to to scale this thing to to make it the old-fashioned way not taking any shortcuts i think that was good on our part to to continue to maintain the quality of the product and um keep it you know a, a family trade secret that was another reason to keep our product from being co-packed is uh to protect the recipe in the process so that's also something I think we did right and staying true to our vision that, you know, we're, we're a homegrown family run operation uh, who's staying true to our traditions and our roots uh, in terms of our brand and, and how we present ourselves to the market, to the public. So I think those are some things we, we did right. And I think that has been part of the secret of our success is that we've remained authentic in who we are as people and with our community, with our, you know, with our brand image and, and, you know, what we represent, you know, in that regard. I think it's important. I mean, here you are, we're talking about manufacturing a type of ice cream, right? And so, but, you know, there's more to a brand, there's more to selling and making, and it's this full picture that, you know, once you're an entrepreneur, you realize like, oh man, I have to know about this. I have to know about that. Like, now I have to deliver on my brand promise and that's what you did. And that's, I think one of the success or failure points in a brand is like, I say, I'm going to do this. I better deliver on it. But that's, it's neat to see like the, the everything kind of wrap up, be wrapped up in this like nice little package with a bow 
Like these are all the things that a business person or manufacturer entrepreneur has to think about. And it's not just creating the widget. It's about like the finances and the running the equipment and the HR and the branding and the flavor. It's like so many things wrapped up into this one little package. It's, it's kind of neat to hear someone else's story on how they did it. Yeah. I mean, a funny little illustration of that is when we were making coffees at home, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of expenses other than the cost of the the product, you know, and maybe a little bit of the time. So we, we would sell the kulfi, like, I think at the time back, this is like, you know, 20 years ago, our wholesale cost was like a dollar to the, to the customer. And then they would sell it for like a dollar 30 or dollar 20 or whatever. Wow. Right. Well, then when we got the new, when we got the commercial kitchen, like the first, the first big commercial location, we were sitting there little, 5,000 square foot facility that we were making the product out of all of a sudden we're like, Oh wait, we've got electricity bills. We've got employees. We've got, you know, uh, utility costs, you know, like we're like, Oh crap. We didn't, yeah. we didn't consider this in the cost of our wholesale. Right. It's crazy. Like, just, you know? And so then we had to up the price by significantly. Mm-hmm. And we were worried, like, how are people going to respond to that? And so like, we're like, you know, cause now our product might jump a dollar, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we were really worried about that. Cause we're like, how are we going to pay for all this? We've got to make so much cool fee and this and that so that's when we started learning cost of goods and exactly. you know you know yep. unit costs so they're like you know stuff we didn't consider before because mm-hmm. you didn't think about it mm-hmm. and and that was really hilarious to consider but the best part was is when we did raise the prices you know and told our cost you know told our wholesale customers like why they're like well yeah we were waiting for you to go up on this because we thought this was too cheap anyway oh my gosh you know, like, <laughs> you know? so they they got it because they're already you know running businesses and know that stuff so it was just really funny so but yeah that's you know we that's how naive we were in the very beginning you know uh when it came to understanding business quote unquote you know absolutely so how many coffees do you have in a day Oh gosh, now today, you know, we can make anywhere from like, you know, 40 to 50,000 pops, the snack size pops in a shift. In a shift? In a shift. Yeah, we have the capacity to do that. You know, we don't always do that based off demand, but we have that capacity and we could probably even do more, um, you know, depending on how many hours we need to work. What's your favorite flavor, Amin? Oh man, it depends on the day and the mood. (laughs) (laughs) How many have you had today so far? Let's just start there. I've had one. I've had one so far. What flavor was it? I had Malai. Okay. You know, we were making that today. So we always do like a taste test. You know, we always, we're always testing it. So to make sure it's right. Hey, if you want an Egyptian's uh, like opinion (laughs) on your country's food, like I'm so happy to be a taste tester for you. 100%. 100%. You just make yourself, make yourself a uh, way up here and we'll, we'll do it. Oh my gosh. Don't tease me like that. <laughs> I'll go rent a minivan with some, um, some ice packs in the back. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to know, how do you define success? You know, I, I never, I never try to, you know, um, success, success is what you feel about yourself, right? I mean, if you are content, if you are happy, um, you know, if you feel your life is, is, is fulfilled, I think success is fulfillment. Then if I have to give a definition, you know, are you feeling fulfilled? Are you feeling that you have purpose? Then that's success. You know, I, I try not to measure it 
and we all do this, but I try not to measure it in terms of monetary value or material things uh, or position or status. Uh, I think those ultimately are all illusions that we, we like to feed ourselves and we all get caught into that trap. But I think at the end of the day, do you feel whole? Do you feel fulfilled? Uh, if the answer is yes, or if the answer is most of the time, I think that's success. I love that answer. And I would probably say the exact same thing. Um, that's kind of like our theme or uh, our slogan for the podcast is do something that makes a difference, you know? And, right. and for me personally, I get more satisfaction knowing I helped someone, I made them feel better. Like that to me is my payment. And like you said, like the monetary, it's so earthly. But mm -hmm. I mean, on a spiritual level, like making a difference in people's lives and making an impact and feeling fulfilled and feeling like you have a purpose, like that is the ultimate success right there. And I think that's super cool that we're like-minded like that. That's cool. like it. Nice. If you want to get your hands on this amazing coffee, they are in four regions of Costco, 14 Dallas area locations. Over 100 HEB stores in Texas. They're in Indian and Pakistani ethnic grocery stores. And you can also visit them at Karina's.com and on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Well, Amin, I'm so glad you came on and shared your story with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Dahlia. It's my pleasure. I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next and try new flavors. always i hope you enjoyed today's show if you did please subscribe to making it to market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website makingittomarket.com thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app and a special thanks to our show sponsors and listeners without your support i would not be able to do this if there's a topic you'd like to hear have a question or even a comment you'd like for me or today's guest to address Feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. If we air your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a free Making It to Market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Oh my gosh, before you leave, you have to check out this local musical artist. She is incredibly talented, a singer and songwriter from Sugarland, Texas. This is Faith Lee singing Outsider. I'm obsessed. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference. I don't listen to the words that you try to say I don't pay attention to the games you like to play I don't like the way you try to stab me in the back Put your cutting jabs away or I'll have to attack Cause I'm an outsider I'm gonna walk through the fire Oh Cause I'm an outsider